Lynn Hiles Ministries presents Dr. Lynn Hiles That You Might Have Life. And here's your host, Dr. Lynn Hiles. And welcome back to the program again this week. And I trust that you are enjoying this series that we're doing on the book of Revelation. I'm sorry, on the book of Romans, (laughs) not Revelation. We're on the book of Romans. And we have been studying Romans now for some months. We are in the seventh chapter. I've already filmed three programs just on Romans 7. So if you've missed them and you'd like to go back and review, uh, you can do that by going to my YouTube channel, or you could go back and listen to the audio portions of it on the podcast. Or if you have an Android device, you can go back and listen to it on an RSS feed. The easiest way to do that is to go to my website at lenhiles.com. In the upper right-hand corner, there are icons that if you tap them, they will take you directly to our YouTube channel or to the podcast. You can subscribe to them. We encourage you to do that. They are absolutely free. And subscribe to them, and you'll be notified every time we upload a new program. So once we air these programs, we then the next day upload them to our uh, our other outlets, our media, so you can review them. So we encourage you to do that. We're talking about the seventh chapter of Romans, and uh, we've already done three uh, uh, segments on the first four or five verses of Romans chapter 7. I'm going to read it to you this week from the Message Bible and try to get down into the latter parts of Romans 7. I'm going to read this is from the Message. It said, You shouldn't have any trouble understanding this, friends, for you know all the ins and outs of the law, how it works, and how its power touches only the living. For instance, a wife is legally tied to her husband while he lives. But if he dies, she's free. If she lives with another man while her husband is living, she's obviously an adulteress. But if he dies, she's quite free to marry another man in good conscience with no one's disapproval. Here's the key verse. So my friends, this is something like what has taken place with you. When Christ died, He took that entire rule-dominated way of life down with Him, and left it in the tomb, leaving you free to marry a resurrection life, and bear offspring of faith for God for as long as we lived that old way of life, doing whatever we felt we could get away with. Sin was calling most of the shots as the old law code hemmed us in. And this made us all the more rebellious. In the end, all we had to show for it were miscarriages and stillbirths. But now that we're no longer shackled to that domineering mate of sin, and now from underneath all those oppressive regulations and fine print, we're free to live a new life and the freedom of God. And so last week and the week before that, we were dealing with how that we are married to another, even him who is raised from the dead. But being back under the law creates miscarriages and stillbirths. And it talk, goes on to say that when we listen to uh, what we could, we, we listen to the law, and uh, the, that old law code hemmed us in, and it made us all the more rebellious. In other words, it created this forbidden fruit principle. And Paul's going to describe what happens uh, in this forbidden fruit, fruit principle. It's kind of like you know, I used to coach football some years ago when my boys were smaller. And I would, uh, we had a play where we would have a guy stand close to the 
sideline. We wouldn't look like we had enough men on the field until the last final second when you had to have them on the field. And I would just let uh, my son or someone step over the line just at that split second, and nobody was covering him over on that edge, and he'd run down the field and get an open shot with the pass. But I would tell him, because after a while they got learning, we were going to do that. I'd tell him, now, whatever you do, when we've got enough men on the field, whatever you do, don't step over that line because we'll get a penalty for too many on the field, too many men on the field. I would no more turn my back and I would see him just taking his toe just to see if he could just kind of press that line a little bit. And that's kind of how things are. In other words, we, we sometimes press the line because of the forbidden fruit principle. It's almost like something, and that's what Paul's going to describe here as when he talks about how the commandment came, and uh, it, it began to trip us up. Let me read on. It says, and, and, and he said, and this made us all the more rebellious. In the end, all we had to show for it was miscarriages and stillbirths. But now that we're no longer shackled to that domineering mate of sin and out from under all those oppressive regulations and fine print, we're free to live a new life in the freedom of God. But I can hear you say if the law code was all was as bad as all that, it's no better than sin itself. That's certainly not true. The law code had a perfectly legitimate function. Without its clear guidelines for right and wrong, moral behavior would be mostly guesswork. Apart from the succinct surgical command, you will not co- covet, I could have dressed covetous up to look like a virtue and ruined my life with it. Don't you remember how it was? I do perfectly well. The law code started out as an excellent piece of work. What happened, though, was that sin found a way to pervert the command into a temptation, making a piece of forbidden fruit out of it. The law code, instead of being used to guide me, was used to seduce me. With all, without all the paraphernalia of the law code, sin looked pretty dull and lifeless, and I went along without paying much attention to it. But once sin got its hands on the law code and decked itself out in all that finery, I was fooled and fell for it. The very command that was supposed to guide me into life was cleverly used to trip me up, throwing me headlong so sin was plenty alive, and I was stone dead. But the law code itself is God's good common sense, each command, sane and holy counsel. I can already hear your next question. Does that mean I can't even trust what is good? That is the law. Is good just as dangerous as evil? No. Again, sin simply did what sin is famous for doing, using the good as a cover to tempt me, to do what would finally destroy me. By hiding within God's good commandments, sin did far more mischief than it could have ever accomplished on its own. I can anticipate the response that's coming. I know that all God's commands are spiritual, but I'm not. Isn't this all your experience? Yes. I'm full myself. After all, I've spent a long time in sin's prison. What I don't understand about myself is that I decide one way, but then I act another, doing things I absolutely despise. So if I can't be trusted to figure out what is best for myself and then do it, it becomes obvious that God's command is necessary. But I need something more. For if the law, for if I know the law but still can't keep it, and if the power of sin within me keeps sabotaging my best intentions, I obviously need help. I realize that I don't have what it takes. I can will it, 
but I can't do it. I decide to do good, but I don't really do it. I decide not to do bad, but then I do it anyway. My decisions, such as they are, don't result in actions. Something has gone wrong deep within me and gets the better of me every time. It happens so regularly that it's predictable. The moment I decide to do good, sin is there to trip me up. I try to delight in God's commands, but it's pretty obvious that not all of me joins in this delight. Parts of me covertly rebel, and just when I least expect it, they take charge. I've tried everything and nothing helps. I'm at the end of my rope. Is there no one who can do anything for me? Isn't that the real question? The answer, thank God, is that Jesus Christ can and does. He acted to set things right in this life of contradictions where I want to serve God with all my heart and mind, but I am pulled by the influence of sin to do something totally different. Now, let me just tell you that this is really not the plight of the Christian journey. This, this, this roller coaster of when I want to do good, evil is present with me, and what I want to do, I never seem to be able to perform it, is he's describing a man's life when he's under the law, that it just doesn't seem to be that he can perform it. Now, let me just say this to you, because I do believe that the law is good, it's perfect, it's holy. And I mean, it, but, but see, what we understand now in the new covenant is we're not justified by the works of the law. We are not justified by the works of the law. Uh, let, me, let me read this to you from the, the New King James. It said, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law, for I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, You shall not covet. But sin taking opportunity by the commandment produced in me all manner of evil desire. So it's what we pe- preach over American pulpits and wonder why we have a problem with sin. So he tells them here that the law, which was meant to be good, becomes the piece of forbidden fruit. And he goes, let me just deal with this a little bit further. He said, but, but sin taking opportunity by the commandment produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law. But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. If you want a revival of sin, preach law and legalism. Preach law. It's not my opinion. So I was alive once without the law. But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. And I found that in my own life. Was we, I was growing up in, in uh, some of the legalism that I was under. I, I, I came to Jesus. I loved Jesus. Start out the Spirit. And boy, just thought, you know, I'm going to be made perfect in the flesh. And the reality of it was, is that the more times I failed and the more they preached against me, what happened was it produced spiritual death in me because I thought, well, I can't, you know, I'm going to die and go to hell. I can't keep these rules. I'm just, I'm totally, I, I found myself in the dilemma that Paul was talking about when I wanted to do good, evil was present with me, and what I wanted to do wasn't what I was able to do. And finally, I just got to the place, I thought, you know what, if I'm going to die and go to hell, at least I'm going to enjoy the ride. And so I walked away from the things of God, knowing that what this was about was not bringing me under condemnation because because Romans 8 will come in and say, you know, uh, there is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. So what this chapter does is it brings you to the dilemma that says, hey, I can't do this on my own human strength and my own flesh. I need a Savior who will deliver me, he says, from this body of death. And so uh, the body of death, let me just let me just deal with this. Paul says then, and the command was to bring life, which 
I found to bring death for sin, taking occasion by the commandment deceived me, and by it killed me. Therefore, the law is holy, the commandment is holy and just and good. Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not, but sin that it might appear sin was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will will to do, that I do not practice, but what I hate, that I do. And if then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, in my flesh, nothing good dwells, for to will is present with me. But how to perform what is good, I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not, or I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now, if I do what I will not want to do, it is no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find that our law, that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into the captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with my mind I serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. Now let me just tell you that he tells them up here that the motions of sin, let me read verse 5. It says, For when we were, key word were, in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit unto death. So he's talking about what we read in the Message Bible, this forbidden fruit principle begin to work in us all manner of concupiscence, another translation says, or it stirs up in me the desire of sin. But here's the concept I want to give you. One of the aspects, at least one of them, of being in the flesh is not I had a bad thought Saturday night. That might be included. But he's talking about when we were in the flesh is when we were trying to do this through human strength and effort. And I begin to hear the Spirit say to me, you know, out of Galatians, when we were in the flesh, he says here in Romans 5, Galatians says, O foolish Galatians, who bewitched you? And he's talking about who hoodwinked and bamboozled you. You started out in the Spirit. Do you think you're going to be made perfect with the flesh? And then he said, the miracles that were wrought among you, did you do it? by the works of the flesh or by the hearing of faith. So what Paul begins to uh, declare here, and I think this is a powerful point, is sometimes being in the flesh is religious flesh. It's you thinking that your holiness and your performance and your glow-in-the-dark pharisaical attitude and all of your rule-keeping, he calls that being in the flesh. Now watch this, because as you go into the fifth chapter of the book of Galatians, he's telling them in this Galatians that stand fast in the liberty wherewith Christ has made you free, and be not again entangled in the yoke of slavery. 
The context of, Rome, of Galatians 5 there is the yoke of slavery was going back up under the law because you started out in the Spirit and now you think you're going to be made perfect in the flesh. And he's telling them, don't go back, stand fast in the liberty, stand fast in the liberty that's in the Spirit where the Spirit of God is doing the work in you. And then he goes on to say, he starts challenging them because these Judaizers had come to try to bring them back into line with circumcision and to bring them back up under the law. And Paul says in that text, if you do that, you have fallen from grace. Falling from grace does not mean you sinned in the sense that we think many times. We say, well, that, that preacher fell from grace. Well, probably he fell right into grace. The truth of it is falling from grace in the context of the Scriptures is going back up under the law. It is being thinking you're going to be justified by the works of the flesh. And Paul called that being in the flesh. And then as he comes on down through chapter 5 of Galatians, where he tells them, do not let these Judaizers seduce you back up under the law, because if you do that, you can go back to circumcision. You have fallen from grace. And then in the same context, same chapter, he said, for the works of the flesh are made manifest, which are these, hatred, malice, envy, strife, divisions, emulations, the stuff you see in every church. What Paul is saying is, if you are under the law, you're going to see the dilemma that Paul was talking about. You're going to dress covetousness up for greed or some other reason. It's going to stir up in you all manner of concupiscence. What he's saying here is the works of the flesh. If you are up under law and you are trying to do this through human performance and flesh, you started out in the Spirit, you think you're going to be made perfect in the flesh, but now this flesh is producing hatred, malice, envy, strife, the stuff you see in every church. And he said in that text, as I have told you before, and I will tell you again, that they which do such things will not inherit the kingdom. He is not saying you can't go to heaven. He's saying you're not inheriting the kingdom of God in your life right now. Inheritance, when you inherit something, you don't earn it. It comes because somebody died and left you something. This glorious life that God wills for us is talking about being determined here in Romans 7 by uh, the Spirit of God working in us. And so then he says, then if I told you before that they which do such things will not inherit the kingdom. It is not producing this new creation lifestyle or this fruit of the Spirit. And then he says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. Romans 7 is dealing with when you are under that old tyranny of that law, the motions of sin which are by the law work in you, all manner of concupiscence. But when you get in union with a relationship with Christ, as we've talked about this husband and wife relationship, what happens is, is that you start to produce the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of your union with Christ is love, joy, peace, gentleness. I found in my own life, the moment I started to move away from law and legalism, I started to really see peace and joy and love and righteousness. And I wasn't faking it anymore. It wasn't fake fruit. It was the real manifestation of the fruit of the Spirit. And so when Paul begins to talk about those things, And then he's talking about, as he goes down through here, he says, who will deliver me from the body of this death? Uh, He's talking about the tyranny of this law and legalism. And when he talks about the body of flesh, I think he's talking about the whole body of law and how it stirs up the evil passions that are inside of you. I truly believe that when you come into the next chapter, 
See, we, uh, once again, we, we stop at Romans 7, and we don't really realize it's, all this is a letter. Then Paul starts in by saying, There is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made us free from the law of sin and death. Let me just tell you, let me just read a few uh, pieces of this in, from the Message Bible. Uh, he says, you know, and we'll get this in the next uh, segment probably. You shouldn't have any trouble understanding this, friends, for you know all the ins and outs of the law, how it works, and, and it's, oh, I'm sorry, that's seven. I need to go into chapter eight. With the arrival of Jesus, the Messiah, the faithful dilemma is resolved. Those who enter Christ being here for us no longer live life, live under a continuous low-lying black cloud. A new power is in operation. The spirit of life in Christ, like a strong wind, has magnificently cleared the air, freeing you from a faded life of brutal tyranny at the hands of sin and death. God went for the juggler when He sent His Son. He didn't deal with the, uh, the problem of something remote, unimportant. In His Son, Jesus, He personally took on the human condition, entered the disordered mess of struggling humanity in order to set it right once for all. The law code weakened as it was by fracturing human nature, could never have done that. The law always ended up being a band-aid on sin instead of the deep healing of it. And now the law code, what it asked for and we couldn't deliver, is accomplished instead of as we, instead of redoubling our own efforts, simply embrace what the Spirit of God is doing in us. So when Paul is declaring in Romans chapter 7, who will deliver me from the body of this death? He comes on down and says, thank God, he will. And the body of this death is your old nature, but it is also the body, the whole body of the law that we are being delivered from that's producing the tyranny within our lives as a piece of forbidden fruit. So when he goes down on down here in Romans 8 and tells us that the whole creation is groaning and travailing to be brought into a glorious liberty, that glorious liberty is a place where we're no longer under an old covenant, but we're in the freedom. These guys were being suffered. Paul, I'm getting way ahead of myself for Romans 8, but Paul was telling them, listen, the suffering of this present time is not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed. The suffering Paul was going through was the persecution for preaching something that seemed to be diametrically opposed to an old covenant paradigm where you were under the fresh, trying to do this to human reasoning, and all it was was a band-aid on sin. But he goes on to say, but not only will the creation be set free, but we will be set free also from the bondage of corruption. And he said he talked about then the adoption to wit. Watch this, the redemption of our bodies. Now, I've heard that preached as being immortality somewhere down the line, but the context here is who will deliver me from the body of this death? The body of sin, the body of sin that, that was being in the flesh, trying to do this through human reasoning, trying to do it through the works of the flesh, which are made manifest, hatred, malice, envy, strife. Who will deliver me from the body of this death? And Paul says we're waiting on the adoption to wit the redemption of our bodies. Don't leave the context here when you read that. The adoption to wit, the redemption of our bodies, was the answer to the prayer he prayed in Romans 7. Who will deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God He will, and He does it through the work of the Spirit, not somewhere out in the distant future, but right now brings me into a glorious liberty where the Spirit of God begins to do in me what I could not do for myself. And when he starts to talk about adoption, I can't help but think about, let me just get this, I can't help but think about Galatians chapter number 4. 
Uh, he says, uh, uh, let me show, let me, uh, he talks about it, uh, Galatians 4, let me just say, it says, so now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ any from a slave, though he is the master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed of the father. Even we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were born under the law, that we might receive, watch this, the adoption of sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father, therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then heir of God through Christ Jesus. So when he's talking about the adoption to wit, the redemption of our bodies in Romans 8, he's connecting that thought with Paul's prayer in Romans 7, who will deliver me from the body of this death? He's talking about being redeemed from the law and being redeemed from the curse of the law, because Galatians 3 talks about while you were children, you were under governors and tutors. It was the law. It was the keepers. The law was used as the governors and tutors to keep a sinful people in the way until the seed should come to whom the promise was made. But Galatians chapter 4 is telling us that we are no longer under the governors and tutors of the law, but now that we're sons, we're sons of God. Because we're sons, He sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, so that we are, we have received the adoption, the Greek word is weathesia, the placing of sons instead of servants. Can you see that the adoption to wit and the redemption of your body is a removing you from an old covenant paradigm to being led and governed by the Holy Spirit where you're no longer a servant or a slave. Now let me say this in closing to this. Think about the prodigal son and the older brother. Both of them are a message. Under the old covenant, we were servants. In the new covenant, we're sons. Both of these sons need to lose a servant mentality. When the younger brother comes home, he comes to his father and he says, Father, even the servants in your house have it better than me. Make me a servant. And the father looks at him and says, son, you're missing the point. Bring the robe, the ring, the shoes, put it on his feet because you're a son. And if you realize you're a son, you'll act like you're a son. That's a powerful story of the return of a prodigal. But I believe the biggest picture was the son who never left the house because he was lost in the house. There's a lot of people lost in the house. And when he comes back to his father, he says, Father, I have served you. I have served you my whole life, and you never once gave me a fat calf to make merry with my friends. And I think that what the father says to him, son, did you not know that all I have belonged to you and you could have had a fat calf any time you wanted it to make merry with your friends? The sad thing is we don't know what we've got. And I believe if the older brother would have asked for a fat calf once in a while and had a party, his younger brother would have never left home looking for one. Because the sad story of that whole thing is, he did not know what the sound of celebration was. When he heard the sound of celebration, he said, what meaneth this? I think it's tragic when we've sat in church our whole lives and we don't know what the sound of celebration is. God wants to move us from servants to sons and heirs of God where the Holy Spirit does in us what we could not do for ourselves. That's what Romans 7 is about. 
God bless you. We're about to end today, but if you'd like to sow a seed into this ministry, you can scan the QR code, take you directly to a link where you can give via credit card or debit card. You can set up a monthly debit if you'd like to become a part, or you can give a one-time gift through our PayPal portal. Also, you can call the number on the screen. Somebody will take your call, or you can send a check or money order to the number that'll come on the screen. But we do need your help, so do it today. Take a moment to write to us. God bless you, and thank you for joining us again. I am excited to announce the release of my latest book titled The Great I Am. In this book, we will explore the seven times in the Gospel of John that Jesus says, I am. When he uses that phrase, it is always in contrast to something from the Old Covenant. For instance, they thought Moses and the law was the door into the sheepfold, but Jesus said to them, I am the door. They thought that Israel was the true vine, but Jesus said to them, I am the vine, you are the branches. As you read the pages of this book, you will discover that Jesus removed the covenant of death and replaced it with the covenant of life. Get your copy of the book, The Great I Am, today.